Welcome to Scavenger's Horde. We're a stars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney Plus or a weird legends novelization you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 179, and it's 6th of May 2022. We like to kick things off by recommending a piece of media, a book, a film, a show, that we've enjoyed and want to put on people's radar. So, Kirsty, what would you like to highlight? I've had a really hard time deciding what to talk about this week. I feel you, it's hard. And we've been reading a whole length novel, you know, which does take up time, so... Yeah, it's understandable we wouldn't have as much time for other things because we've been reading Kenobi. Spoilers. Yes, and luckily I really enjoyed that, so I would recommend yeah. that to people. And yep. In for our sure. spotlight discussion, you'll hear more about why that is. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in terms of watching, really the only thing that I would like heartily recommend that I've seen is, um, and it's pretty dated at this point, um, it's a documentary that Sam Neill, the actor, made um, in the mid-90s uh, called The Cinema of Unease. And you can find it on YouTube if you search, you'll, you'll find it. Okay, um, nice. And it's like 50 minutes long and it's just a really interesting kind of personal history for him um, growing up in New Zealand and his career as well. And as someone who like knows, you know, the the popular New Zealand filmmakers, especially like these days, Taika Waititi, Peter Jackson, Jane Campion, etc. Um, it just introduced me to a lot of people that I'd previously been unaware of and also contextualized a lot of the stuff that I was already aware of in terms of New Zealand's um, politics and, and social history. So I thought that was really compelling. I recommend Sounds it really if you're a fan of his work. And, and yeah, again, it's mid-90s, so he's like talking about his experiences working on the piano and stuff but obviously someone like Taika Waititi is completely missing from it um but I know they're they're friends now and obviously Sam's been in his films so maybe he'll do a follow-up one day who knows (laughs) (laughs) more cinema of an ease perhaps Yeah. yeah well that's actually so I should probably mention why I found it um there's a New Zealand film writer I follow called Andrew Todd on Twitter and Mm -hmm. he he started this discussion by kind of he ran like a Twitter poll asking his followers who are probably mostly not from New Zealand uh, what's your sense of oh I can't remember how he phrased it it's something like uh, what's your overall perception of like the tone of New Zealand's um, export cultural like you know our films and our TV shows is it like more on the humorous irreverent quirky side or is it kind of uneasy and um somber and tragic and i think people were replying because obviously these days people probably mostly associate new zealand's cultural exports or at least the the movies and things they watch with someone like taika watiti and and he was like this is so interesting because for me i'm from here i feel like our history in cinema you know he was talking about like heavenly creatures and jane campion's movies and um just he was like a lot of it is actually really quite somber and dark and a bit twisted. So I, I just found that really interesting and he just recommended this um, as, as something to watch that was easily accessible. So I did. And nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that sounds really fascinating, actually. I will check that out. Um, yeah, I've seen a few films from New Zealand, but nowhere near enough. And that sounds like it would introduce me to a bunch of interesting films. Yeah, and you get to see some clips of Tim too. <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> Obviously, it's of I think, um, Once Were Warriors is the film that Sam Neill's talking about that that he was a star in. Oh, that's so cool. 
we'll talk about in a bit but I was watching the gallery episode about Book of Boba Fett and regardless of that actual episode I was so happy just to see Tem being happy and chilling out and hanging out with everyone I was like oh I love Tem yeah um yeah what else um would you like to mention (laughs) Kirsty well (laughs) not much no I mean not I'm not going to name specific movies I don't think but I have been watching more of the films that Karina Longworth mentions in her erotic 80s series that's ongoing Nice. And I, I'm not sure how to recommend them as specific movies, but they're they're just pretty fascinating to watch. And these are these ones that were new to me because a lot of the ones that I was talking about last time were rewatches. Right. These were brand new, um, and they're like around seventy nine, eighty, um, and just very fascinating to watch. Given now that I've listened to her show and have more of the context around, you know, how they were being made, and and I guess just picking up on things that she points out because she's very astute and knowledgeable and um yeah just kind of fascinating to watch them through those lenses so yeah can you name a few of the films in question well <laughs> yes um dressed to kill the brian de palma movie and uh, 10 um which is blake edwards and julie andrews is in it and dudley moore and um it's like the big this is what's interesting. Karina's talking about it as like the big Bo Derek movie, you know, like she's running along the beach, she's desirable and stuff, but she's not actually in it that much, or at least not until like the second half. Right. Um, but I think that's partly the point because it's kind of like, and I went into it, it it's definitely more of on like the rom-com farce side of things as opposed to like an erotic thriller. And it kind of, charts this guy's midlife crisis and like pursuing a younger woman and betraying the woman that he's with yeah i was about to say like i cannot picture dudley moore in an erotic film no it's it's honestly (laughs) i had a lot of fun watching it and my husband did too but we kept saying this is not what we were expecting (laughs) because it's just completely ludicrous yes um but very entertaining and nice um like an interesting yeah look at kind of male anxieties and or at least, you know, that that mainstream cis-heterosexual perception of, like, relationships and then, like, being interested in someone younger than yourself and kind of going through a bit of a midlife crisis. And then when you eventually talk to someone and pursue them, you realise they're not necessarily the person that you were, like, projecting or assuming. Right. Um, yeah, entertaining. I'd be curious yeah. to see what other people think. Very much a yeah. product of its time. <laughs> Yeah, no, I um, listened to Karina's episode on 10 and I thought it was really, really interesting, especially in terms of how she was talking about the star persona of Bo Derek. Mm. Um, yeah, and just how she was like infantilized and marginalized constantly in her own coverage. And yeah, it made me want to watch the film. So I, I do definitely have that on my radar now. Yeah, the film is it's very interesting once it gets to the point where she actually has lines and something to say because the film's almost kind of... with karina's commentary it is like this meta thing where she's suddenly spouting ideas and beliefs that he finds mystifying and it actually like puts him i I guess i'm spoiling things now but um it's just obviously it's not what he expected to come out of the situation and um she's her own person with her own inner life (laughs) and so that was quite novel yeah no i really like that idea that definitely makes it sound really intriguing um yeah, no, so thanks for that. Um, and yeah, obviously I know you were saying that you haven't had much time, Kirsty, to like read or watch things apart from Kenobi. So I'm guessing that's it from you for this time. At the moment, yeah. Kenobi, I, we'll get into it later, but um, 
I think you thought the same. It's a bit slow moving. So it, it took me longer to read it than um, I expected to just because it took me a while to like really get into it. But then once I did, I didn't want to put it down. Yeah, no, I think it. Yeah, I'll stop talking because otherwise I'll go on like a long discussion of Kenobi. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and yeah, we will return to that in due course. We're excited to talk about it, which is why we're kind of already getting ahead of ourselves. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, so my picks, um, I'm very lucky in that I live in London and obviously in a big capital city like London, there's lots of opportunities to watch things in the cinema, including old classic movies. And that's one of my favourite things to do. So I'm very fortunate that all of the films I'm about to mention I watched in the cinema. So yeah, the first film I watched um, that I really love, and it's a film I've seen before, it's not a new film, but I still absolutely adore it, and so I want to give it a shout out. It's Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes from 1948, I believe. Um, And it's just the most wonderful Technicolor dream of a movie. It's about a ballet dancer who joins a very, very prestigious ballet company um, controlled by a man called Lermontov, um, who's played by like the sexiest motherfucker, Anton Walbrook. Oh my god, I love him so much. Sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't call him that. Um, but I, I really do just have a major crush on him. And let, let me say, it's a very weird thing to have a crush on a man who was born in 1897, but mm. I totally do. <laughs> Yeah, no, see, exactly. Like, Kirsty's on board because there's just no barriers to what's problematic anymore. <laughs> you might be persuading me to finally crack out the, the Blu-ray I bought. I bought the Criterion last year. Um, oh, amazing. It is on the channel as well, but, you know, sometimes there's something special about watching something on physical media. Exactly. And if you have it, definitely take advantage of it. But yeah, it's just so wonderful. And I'd say if you are in a lucky position and you have an opportunity to see it in the cinema run don't walk because it just looks so spectacular on a big screen it's just absolutely gorgeous then the next film is sunrise which is a silent movie from the late 1920s um it's directed by fw murnau who's one of the famous german expressionist filmmakers and it was done in a period when he went to Hollywood, basically. They offered him lots of money and like they were like, well, make whatever you want. <laughs> and he made Sunrise, which is a complete masterpiece. It has Janet Gaynor in it, who was in the original A Star is Born from the 1930s, before the Judy Garland one. And she's wonderful in it. It's basically a story about a husband and a wife. And it's like a fable, you know, so it's not super realistic. It's like a poetic story about this marriage that's crumbling. And the husband is being seduced by this woman from the city. And the woman from the city convinces the husband to murder the wife. And he like, is about to put the plan in action when he questions everything. And then the whole film is basically about them falling back in love again, you know, and rediscovering what they adore in each other. Aww. And it's so sweet and lovely. And it's just so incredibly moving as well. There's like a climax to it all that I won't spoil, but... There's something incredible about watching a film that's almost 100 years old and it can still make you cry at the end, you know, and it genuinely does. I feel like it's so immediate and you just feel the emotional pull of it so strongly that it's just astonishing. And I think it's one of the most accessible silent films there is. There's very few intertitles, so it's mostly just told through the visuals. You know, there's Mm. very few words on screen. Um, so yeah, it's a really ma- amazing feat of filmmaking. Um, I know you haven't seen it, Kirsty, but have you heard about it? No, and I was 
I was just thinking that sounds so surprising the way you're describing it because my only frame of reference here is Nosferatu. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. So I was like, really? Okay. I mean, it looks really good, so I'll, I'll add it to my list. But Yeah. No, it's very different from Nosferatu, and I actually think it's much, much better than Nosferatu. <laughs> I, I do think Nosferatu is good. You know, it's obviously not bad by any means, but it's from the early 1920s, mm. so things were still a bit more primitive when that film was being made. Yeah. Whereas when Sunrise came along, everything is so much more sophisticated, and it's like a quantum leap forward in terms of the sophistication of the filmmaking. So yeah definitely check that one out i think okay. it would probably be on the criteria channel but cannot promise so i'll yeah. have a search take a look but thank you that sounds lovely yeah that is great um and yeah then i think it yeah it was on tuesday i watched the tale of the princess kaguya which is a studio ghibli film and the reason i saw that in the cinema is that the british film institute were doing a series called anime at the imax and there's basically a bloody great IMAX cinema in London um, near Waterloo Station that is the largest cinema in the UK. And normally it's astonishingly expensive because they only show new releases and you have to pay like £30 a pop to go there. But for this anime at the IMAX experience, it was only £10 a ticket. And I love this film. I'd seen Kaguya before, but only on DVD. And I was like, this is going to be amazing. And so I went to it and it was amazing. And oh my God. It's honestly one of the best film going experiences I've had in my life. So it's an animated movie based on a Japanese folktale about a princess who's sent down from the moon to the earth. And she's raised by this old couple um, where the husband's a bamboo cutter. Um, and she grows up to be a very elegant and beautiful princess. And she has lots of suitors, etc, etc. And that doesn't sound like much, but basically the filmmaker of it is the guy who did Grave of the Fireflies which is obviously one of the more famous Ghibli films Um, and he essentially uses it to tell this parable about what makes life worth living Um, and I I could talk for ages about this so I won't Um, but it's just really moving it's really beautiful it's completely hand-drawn from beginning to end and it's done in this furry like stripped back minimalistic animation style and it's just astonishingly beautiful. I cannot praise the artistry of it enough. It's incredible. But yeah, it's just something to behold. You know, words can't do it justice. It's an- another very, very visual movie. So please, if you love animation, especially if you love Japanese animation, go and watch it. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I can't get over you saying that's one of your greatest cinema experiences ever because I don't think I know anyone who goes to the cinema more than you. <laughs> I, I try to be very selective when I say that sort of thing because, you know, another one of my greatest cinema experiences of all time is The Last Jedi at the Science Museum. Mm. That is, like, right up there, you know. I think because I'm, like, a nerd about visual presentation and sound, you know, I'm very sensitive to, like, good quality projection and good quality sound systems. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just seeing a film that I already loved with such a high standard of presentation, it was really breathtaking to me. Um, I'm sure most people are normal and would just be like, yeah, that was really good. They would be like, this changed my life. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can be a bit hyperdramatic like that. It's just how I roll. <laughs> um, okay, and then very, very quickly, the two new release films that I've watched um, recently are The Northman and Benedetta. And I know you have seen Benedetta, Kirsty. so do you want to say a few words about your feelings about Benedetta? Highly entertaining. Yes, 
I would concur. <laughs> and very strong performances as well. You know, yeah. I everyone was very good in that. And most importantly, has the Merovingian I from know. The Matrix. <laughs> French so guy from The Matrix Reloaded. If yeah. people don't I, know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I did not know he was going to be in the movie. So when he popped up, I was like, hang on, is that... <laughs> That must have been was. a nice surprise. Yeah, exactly. And he was just like so like scenery chewing, you know, it was exactly the type of performance I wanted from that actor. Mm. So it was perfect. And yeah, it's just like a sexy non-movie, basically. Don't take it too seriously. Just go in and have a fun time. I had a fun time. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, yeah, The Northman. Um, that's obviously the new Rob Eggers film about Vikings and lots of shirtless Alexander Skarsgård. Um, and yeah, I thought it was very good. Um, I think the first time I saw it, I saw it in Dolby Atmos. And again, that was like another one of those great experiences because it was amazing projection, amazing sound. I went back and saw it a second time and I still really liked it, but I didn't love it quite as much. But yeah, it was still really good. So I definitely recommend checking The Northman out. I think you can see signs of studio interference. Oh, you know, no. I don't think it's exactly as Eggers would have wanted it. Well, I, I did see an interview with him where he was complaining that he didn't get to do any full frontal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, um, and there are scenes where that could have absolutely figured. Um, let's put it that way. But I've basically been monologuing for like 15 no, minutes. No, that's great. I feel like it's more than balanced out by lackluster. Oh, <laughs> viewing experiences and i do recommend cinema of an ease by the way that's not just like oh i guess i have to throw this in there Um, but it's it's a short documentary rather than you know an amazing technicolor classic like the red shoes so yeah like in a way though i'm cheating to be honest because i think usually i try to be like i'm only going to recommend new things that i haven't seen before and of my picks, I've seen three of the five before, you know, so in a way I'm basically cheating. So don't beat yourself up. Because <laughs> By I'm our self-imposed criteria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one cares. Basically like the podcast equivalent of self I would say if you've chosen to rewatch something, that's a high endorsement, obviously. Yeah. It's something that you should recommend. So Exactly. And more importantly, I travelled an hour across London to go and see all these things. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going, I'm going, Yes. The red shoes put it in my eyeballs. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop being weird now. Um, okay, so we have obviously had a new Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer, which we will talk about imminently. But just briefly, before we go into that, there is also a new episode of Star Wars Gallery, which is the making of series they do about the new Disney Plus shows, essentially. And they've just released the episode on Book of Boba Fett that we both watched. Um, so yeah, we won't talk about that in detail, but you just want to share broad general thoughts Kirsty. yeah i mean however i feel about the finished shows i always enjoy watching these afterwards you know it's always entertaining you get a little look at how things are going behind the scenes and you know how these ideas come about and stuff um and i i do think that this one reflected the kind of haphazard finished structure of the show um the jumping <laughs> yeah. around all over the place and yeah <laughs> i did appreciate the honesty from people like favreau and filoni they were like oh we miss mando we miss grogu let's put them in (laughs) you know it did have this kind of unabashed self-indulgence to it which i appreciated (laughs) okay so i actually have a question about that because i was watching it without my full attention because i was making dinner at the same time um so what i did hear them when they started talking about you know the mando episode and the luke stuff etc etc but i didn't quite catch if there was like any like justification at all you know in terms of the structure of the show for why they did that was there (laughs) 
I mean, it depends what you count as justification. I think they were just like, well, we want to know what he's up to and the fans will be wondering, like, is Grogu getting on okay with Luke? Which struck me as quite interesting because that's not really what I was wondering when I was watching a show about Boba Fett. I just figured we'd catch up to that in the next season of Mando. Yeah. But, you know, they just love these characters that they've created and they just, they're just doing what they want. It's It's their sandbox. So... You know, it works for some fans. It doesn't really work for us, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I kind of like at this point. I don't like get mad when I watch it. I kind of genuinely find it endearing yeah. how excited and passionate they are. You know, because it's clearly real. You know, they clearly do genuinely love all this stuff, and they love what they're doing, and they love that they get the opportunity to do this. It make it softens my feelings towards the show as a whole. You know, regardless of what my reservations might have been. So I do know there was real love behind it you know and i can't be angry or like bitter at that you know life's too short Mm. i'm glad people are having fun yeah and it it was you know as you said it was lovely to see tam um i particularly because the um the stuff with the tuscans was like a real highlight of the show for me the steph green episode um i really liked seeing snippets of them working on that behind the scenes and talking about that stuff yeah, and um, I really liked hearing from Steph Green as well, albeit briefly. I would have liked more of her, to be honest. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, people know how we feel about the show. You know, it's, it it was a bit all over the place. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> tis what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's okay. <laughs> but And luckily, Obi-Wan Kenobi looks like a very different kind of show. Which is good. Um, so yeah, in the last few days, um, we've actually timed our podcast well for a change because there has been a new Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer and a new Obi-Wan Kenobi poster. Oh, looking very handsome and stoic. Exactly. So basically you've got um, you in there as Kenobi in full space Jesus mode, you know, with the robes and stuff, looking soulfully off into the middle distance and then on the cliff um that's sort of like superimposed behind him you have vader with the red lightsaber out right where um, obi-wan's heart is exactly where his heart is and, and i like that as you can read it as literal like vader's literally there hunting for kenobi or vader's just in obi-wan's heart haunting him <laughs> i think both work mm. although to be fair actually like again this is informed by my reading of the novel maybe it's different in canon but my understanding is that kenobi does not know that anakin is vader that's the impression you get isn't it yeah you think that he thinks he killed him yes absolutely so yeah i really really hope they do that in the show you know, oh you mean like we get that reveal that he realizes yeah. he's alive yeah that you know good. that it starts out with him assuming that he killed anakin and struggling with that guilt and then he's like oh fuck anakin's alive and a monster <laughs> this is worse <laughs> yeah exactly so i think that's interesting you know and that's an interesting thing for you to do as an actor as well in terms of finding a way of expressing that turnabout in your perception of reality um so yeah i'd like to see that um and we also got a new trailer which i really liked i thought was stronger than the first one um definitely more atmospheric what did you think about the new trailer Kirsten? me too you get a little bit more a sense of the story obviously it's still being pretty vague and secretive but i really enjoyed seeing that interaction between him and owen i'm really looking forward to seeing joel edgerton's performance i hope that he gets quite a meaty little role there yeah no it's like an amazing 
like roll of the dice, isn't it? Because he was cast in Revenge of the Sith and, and Attack of the Clones, actually, when he was basically a newbie actor, you know, in his mm-hmm. early 20s and no one had a clue who he was. Um, whereas now he's quite a big name in his own right and it's really cool that he's come back for this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like you say, I really hope they make a juice of him. Yeah, and he, he's got a lot of range as an actor as well. And I feel like you kind of need that for a character like Owen, who's quite complex you know i mean i'm I'm kind of assuming that's where they're going with him just kind of based on the little sense you get with him in the original trilogy and then like how he's talking to obi-wan here he's he's trying to protect luke and his family um but can he has like a bit of a a menace to him you know the dark side (laughs) runs in the family even the step family Yeah, no, so I appreciated that. Um, and we also get, like, lots and lots of, like, what I presume is Inquisitors mm-hmm. in this trailer. Or at least it's, like, menacing people dressed in dark robes. <laughs> um, and, yeah, my main thought is, wow, there's a lot of these people. Like, and you've seen Rebels, right? So were there loads of Inquisitors in Rebels as well? Oh, yeah. Just... Oh, okay. <laughs> so, like, it's the whole thing. So, like, is it, like, an army kind of Pretty thing? much. Yeah, they're, like, Vader's posse. Wow. Okay. Yeah, well, well, that's good. That gives me context um, to why the hell there's so many of them. In my head, I was like, oh, maybe there's, like, three of them or something. And it's like, oh, no. Yeah, there was that Jedi Fallen Order as well, wasn't there? It's just, yeah, I yeah. mean, it would be hard for Vader to be in all of these places at once, so. Yeah, he needs his little proxies running around. I kind of like how the design of them, like, obviously, you know, you can tell they're all baddies and they've all got, like, the dark robes and stuff. But they all have, like, their own, like, little unique costume elements and stuff. And I kind of like, in a canon, you know, thinking about it from a canon perspective, I like the thought of them all, like, tailoring their costumes, you know, be like, oh, I'm going to make my costume a bit special and different. Yeah, it makes you curious to see their interpersonal... dynamics like do they see themselves as a team or are they like competitive yeah i I feel like i've not seen much synergy between these individuals i might be wrong they might all get on like a house on fire but um yeah i'd like it if there's some good interpersonal conflict going on and are you a bit more reassured about the shape of rupert friend's head that was a big thing for some people yeah to be fair i was one of those people so yeah um i think it looks better than it did in the first trailer i'm still not completely sold but you know, it's the sort of thing where if it's good performance and I just get by the character when I'm watching the show, I will no longer care that he has right. a big head. You yeah. know, I'll get over it. So. I mean, he's obviously not human, so they want to make him look a little different. <laughs> yeah, some races can have big heads. <laughs> I'm sorry, be stupid. Um, and I love how much we get of Moses Ingram mm. in this new trailer as well. It seems like she's a real focus. Um, and... I, I like that there's a sense of like passion to her you know you see like real emotion in her face um and again this is very hard to extrapolate as you just see the briefest of flashes um and i'm reading a lot into those brief flashes but you know i think there's a tendency sometimes in star wars to make the villains all stoic badasses who are just like staring sullenly into the middle distance and i find those types of villains so boring i like it when villains have like passion and are invested in what they're doing and I feel like she's one of those people so I hope that my headcanon of her pays off basically (laughs) Um, yeah do you have any feelings about that character in particular oh I'm just looking forward to seeing her performance and and yeah what whether she does have a kind of arc that we can track yeah Um, because there's 
it feels like there are so many new characters coming in that I'm just curious how they're going to balance them all. And is it like six episodes that we're going to get? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. You don't want to get too invested prematurely. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's true. I might be building myself up. Although I was pleasantly surprised to see that um, Kumar Nanjiani is uh, playing a human character. Yes. But they've obviously got this trend recently of putting all of these like comedic actors in the droid characters. And yeah. um, I don't feel like putting Matt Berry in a droid character was entirely successful with Boba Fett. <laughs> so there oh. could have been something a bit more interesting going on there. So it was nice to see his face. No, I agree. And is it just me or do the robes he's wearing in the screenshot look a bit like Jedi robes? Yeah, that's why I'm like, is he another Jedi on the run? Like, what's the story there? He looks a bit sad and bedraggled, which I guess would fit with that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm a rough patch of life, dude. Mm. <laughs> Been on the run for 10 years. But yeah, no, it was a good trailer. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for the show. Obviously, I was already excited for it. But, you know, it feels more real now that we're actually in May. And oh, gosh, yeah. Happy May the 4th. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, so, like, I'm so bad at this. I literally had it in the notes. Um, but yeah, it was May the 4th um, as well, which is when this trailer came out because... Because, yeah, may the 4th be with you and all that. So, yeah. Um, and just briefly on the may the 4th thing, there were some great posts from Star Wars and Star Wars adjacent people, including my favourite, Daisy Ridley posting a picture of herself with someone in a Kylo Ren costume. Was that her on the Chaos Walking set? I think it was, yeah. It looked like her birthday, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've got no idea why someone was there in a Kylo costume. I guess it's like, oh, she's the Star Wars girl. Let's get someone in a Kylo yeah, costume. Yeah, she's not going to be able to escape that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I didn't you send me a picture of Samuel L. Jackson as well, Kirsty? Yeah, he was wearing a Vision shirt. Yeah, what a badass. <laughs> Just has the best taste. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, I love him. Uh, okay, cool. Any final words on Kenobi for now? Or at least Obi-Wan Kenobi. I need to be more specific. Well, that's the thing. We'll get... Kenobi. I'm sure as part of our discussion later, we'll like talk about does this get us more excited for the show and do we hope to see elements kind of translate there or not? So. Yeah, exactly. So we don't want to like jump ahead of ourselves, basically. But yeah, then the only other thing I believe we need to talk about, although we won't go into too much depth, is that the full Star Wars Celebration schedule has been released, which is obviously a bit more relevant for people who are actually going to the convention, which we are not this year. Um, But yeah, like it's always fun to see what they're doing. Um, And there is a lot on, as you could predict. It's like the usual span of things, right? Like lots of stuff about books, like music, panels of the actors and things. Did anything in particular stand out for you, Kirsty? Um. I, I did see that Lawrence Katzen's going to be on a panel. Yes. That was a nice surprise. That's true. But the other thing I was very happy to see, um, they, were, they were talking about it on Twitter, was that Blast Points are going to be on a panel. Yeah. I'm so happy for them. I can't think of two more deserving podcasters out there. Yeah. And a very apt topic, I think, cre- the creatures of Return of the Jedi, because they're the biggest Return of the Jedi fans I can think of. Yeah. Could you read out a bit of the panel information for people, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. It's at uh, 2 p.m. live on the Twin Sun stage. Movie Monster fans won't want to miss this in-depth exploration of Return of the Jedi's aliens. Join special guest and Return of the Jedi creature maker Kirk Thatcher, along with FX artist Tom Spina, Amy Ratcliffe, and Jason and Gabe from Blast Points as they turn their keen eye towards the throne room of Jabba the Hutt and the wondrous creatures of Return of the Jedi with a showcase of rare images and stories from the making of the film. 
and this is on the Sunday, so May 29th. Um, so yeah, if you're going to celebration, go to this panel. <laughs> Basically, no excuses. You know about it now. Yeah, I hope, I hope we get to see some video of that. Yeah, same. I, I feel like because it's one of the smaller ones, I'm not sure, you know, whether it'd be streamed. But I feel like the guys from Blast Points would probably record it and put it on their podcast, if nothing else. So yeah, I'm sure people will get to experience it some in some way. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. Um, I think that covers us then. So that means it's time to move on to our spotlight discussion on the Kenobi novel by John Jackson Miller. Um, yeah, so to start us out, could you read out the publisher's summary, please, Kirsty? Tatooine, a harsh desert world where farmers toil in the heat of two suns while trying to protect themselves and their loved ones from the marauding Tusken Raiders. A backwater planet on the edge of civilized space and an unlikely place to find a Jedi Master in hiding, or an orphaned infant boy on whose tiny shoulders rests the future of a galaxy. Known to locals only as Ben, the bearded and robed off-worlder is an enigmatic stranger who keeps to himself, shares nothing of his past, and goes to great pains to remain an outsider. But as tensions escalate between the farmers and a tribe of sand people led by a ruthless war chief, Ben finds himself drawn into the fight, endangering the very mission that brought him to Tatooine. Ben, Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi, hero of the Clone Wars, traitor to the Empire and protector of the galaxy's last hope, can no more turn his back on evil than he can reject his Jedi training. And when blood is unjustly spilled, innocent lives threatened and a ruthless opponent unmasked, Ben has no choice but to call on the wisdom of the Jedi and the formidable power of the Force in his never-ending fight for justice. Yeah, thank you. Very nicely read. Um... Yeah, so there's an obvious reason why we've read this now, and that is because the Kenobi show is coming at the end of May, and we thought it would be a good and helpful exercise to read this book beforehand. So obviously, we have no idea if any of this is going to play into the TV show whatsoever. I strongly doubt it, to be honest, but I think this one in particular is quite well known as being particularly acclaimed. You know, it had good reviews. It was considered one of the better Legends novelizations. Um, and I just also really wanted something that was more introspective about Kenobi. So I've read several books about that character before, but they're always more like action oriented. So, you know, you get some good moments with him in Qui-Gon, for example, but um, nothing super deep or compelling. Um, whereas this was exactly what I wanted. It was very introspective and really getting into his head. Um, so yeah, like what what were your kind of expectations going into this, Kirsty? Did you have any expectations? Well, I heard that it was an acclaimed book within the fandom as well. So I yeah. I didn't have like specifically high expectations, but I thought it would be good and I'd enjoy it. And I did. Nice. Um, and I'm sort of kicking myself for not reading it earlier, to be honest, because I've always enjoyed this character. I've always loved Ewan's performance and his take on the character. And um, I feel like it's a it's very fitting for where you'd expect him to be right after the events of Revenge of the Sith. Yes. And obviously the TV show is going to take place a few years later. So you know, I feel like, as you say, there's probably a good chance that things won't explicitly play into that. But I don't think it really needs to. I think it will just be kind of like the logical flow on. Um, yeah. Yeah, hopefully it all just fits together without them trying too hard. Yeah, so I think one of the things that really that I really admired about this book 
was how it didn't do the things you'd necessarily expect of a story about Kenobi at this point. You know, so it does like start out really with him just after he's dropped off Luke with Owen and Beru. But, you know, there's basically zero interaction with Owen and Beru after that point. You know, you know it's happened. You know the baby is with them. And there is a memorable encounter later on, but it's not a direct encounter. Um, So they're mentioned again. But, you know, I really was expecting more, you know, about him, like, watching the baby, you know, and keeping an eye on them and stuff. And it's not really that at all. It's much more about him leading his own life and basically being what do I do now? <laughs> you know, he's dropped the baby off. There's not much for him to do, you know, and obviously the story of the novel is that, well, there's always trouble happening in some form and because he's a Jedi and because he's the type of person he is, he can't turn away from that. You know, he has to get involved and help with as much as he can, given the circumstances. I felt it was very impressive how it worked well within its own constraints. You know, it set itself a very small box to work in, but it did a lot with that small box. Yeah, and it it quite explicitly, like, has Kenobi kind of addressing that adjustment that's going on. Like, obviously, he's lived his life within the Jedi Order with these big, grand events that shape the course of the entire galaxy's history. And then he's adjusting to this very small world and kind of getting involved in these, like, interpersonal conflicts between people who are living, you know, small, quiet lives on the edge of the galaxy. Um, And he says that kind of thing to people. Um, one I didn't take a lot of notes for quotes, but um, one that really stuck with me is when he says this to um, his new friend Annaline. A life that seems small on the outside can be limitless on the out- inside. Even a person living in the remotest place can be concerned about hundreds or the whole galaxy. Yeah. And you can tell he's saying that as something that he's recently realised himself. So when we first started reading it, I was like, oh, this isn't really... I, I don't know how I feel about primarily getting a view of Kenobi from these new characters perspectives I kind of wanted to just focus on on him and obviously we do get these little um interludes where he's like meditating and trying to commune with Qui-Gon and those were very appreciated for kind of more of an internal look um but I feel like it balances the perspectives really well in a way that like builds your understanding of Kenobi as a character and these new characters as well obviously um it's I don't know, I, I didn't expect to become so attached to those new characters, but that's exactly what I would want from in you know engaging in a new story set in this kind of different time period with this character who, you know, we all think that we know really well, um, but then he's in this brand new kind of unprecedented situation. He's dealing with this very raw grief and he isn't, he does seem to be under the impression that he killed Anakin. So he's coping with that guilt. And, um, you know, aside from Qui-Gon, who, you know, isn't there as a an alive human being who we can relate to and and he's talking to him but there's no guarantee that he's hearing or responding back yeah um he does like almost against his own judgment start opening up a little bit to Annaline, but she really does have to <laughs> show some patience and persistence there yeah this will sound like a really weird comparison and you'll probably laugh when i say it which is completely justified but I think a lot of what Obi-Wan was going through in this book, it reminded me of Martin Scorsese's Silence. Because that film is heavily about the silence of God, right? You know, mm. in terms of the characters wrestling with, oh my God, like, what is my faith, you know, in this awful situation where I'm being persecuted? You know, is this truly worth it? 
And I felt like throughout this book, you do get a lot of that feeling of questioning. You know, there's lots of moments where Obi-Wan is actively questioning the Force, you know, and questioning what he was taught as a Jedi. And, you know, it's kind of like, is any of this real? And I think it's not made explicit, but you made a good point about the interludes with Qui-Gon. Because obviously Obi-Wan is trying to commune with him, but there's no sense of any answer whatsoever. Mm. You know, it's almost like a therapy session that like Ben is doing for his own benefit rather than for any sort of like practical reasons related to the force or anything um and yeah it's not super emphasized or lingered on but I did really get that sense of a man in religious or spiritual crisis in this book and I thought that was a really interesting facet to Obi-Wan at this time in his life yeah we might cover them in more depth later but there were some really interesting points where he as you say was pondering like the attitude that jedi have towards romantic attachments yeah and and family and community and and relating that to you know his own relationship with satine and anakin and padme um and padme still believing that there was good in anakin after all he'd done everything it was all just stuff as i was reading it i was like oh rachel will love this too you know it was all the stuff that we we you know fans speculate and discuss and it's kind of cool to see someone in in the actual universe look look back on that after you know the jedi order has fallen and start questioning it themselves um yeah yeah but over the course of the story you know the the journey that he goes on is he's kind of carving out a new little life for himself that still has some meaning and purpose yeah um I felt it was like great in a similar way to Revenge of the Sith like that because it wasn't just basically riffing, you know, off Star Wars things that we know. It was really engaging quite deeply with like themes and ideas that are maybe touched upon in the films but never deeply explored and, you know, just giving them so much more depth and like a real like human factor that isn't always made explicit in the films. And just like really interrogating the subtleties and complexities of things and examining scenarios from different points of view and stuff. And yeah, that's totally our jam. So yeah, it was great. Yeah. I'm conscious of the fact that some people might be listening with no sense of what the actual story is or what the new characters are. Should we maybe try and do a bit of an overview discussion? (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. So I guess in the publisher's summary, that's like a very, very very vague vague. (laughs) introduction to what the story is. Yeah, so do you maybe want to have a go at summarising what the plot is, Kirsty? I guess I'll try. So the as I said, like the story is kind of split into these different perspectives and um one of them is obviously Kenobi like talking to Qui-Gon and, and meditating in that sense. Um and then we also have Annaline, who's like the local shop owner. And um she's a, a widow, single mom, and we meet her kids as well. And her and her daughter very quickly both develop crushes on Obi-Wan, which feels very relatable and understandable. Um, and then there's a um, a man called Oren who seems to be romantically interested in Annaline. Um, and he was friends with her husband who's passed away. And um, he's the local moisture farmer. And um, you learn a lot about him as the story goes by. I mean, I, I don't know. If it doesn't seem like a, a huge surprise what happens. It all kind of fits with the character that he's presented as at the beginning. Um, but maybe there are some surprises there. Uh, I don't know. And um, how, how do you? How would you say it? Ayark? Ayark? Um, yeah, like 
it's obviously it's hard, isn't it, about listening to an audio book. I think I was thinking uh, Ayak or something. Ayak. Yeah. That's the Tuscan war leader. So this is something that I did not expect going in, that we would get a Tuscan's perspective of Ben as a character um, and as a main character themselves as well, who you assume to be a male war leader from the, the start, but it's revealed over the course that um, she's actually a mum and the female leader of her clan and kind of desperately trying to keep things together because of the Tuscans um, obviously suffered a big attack in recent years. And it's, yeah. uh, you Who know, could have done that? <laughs> we're knows? supposed to know exactly what happened there, but Obi-Wan doesn't really. And yeah. it, you, can, you actually have a moment where she's talking to him about what happened and that he does kind of put it together and has this like haunted expression that she spots. Um, but yeah, it's all done. It kind of glosses over things in a way that, like, you can get that sense of horror from him as he realizes it, but it's not like the main point of what's happening. Yeah, and I feel like, and again, people can correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but I think this novel was like the first one that really deeply took a look at Tuscan culture and tried to like portray things from their point of view. You know, and it, and it's kind of wrong to say humanize them because. They're obviously not human and they definitely do not want to be human. You know, they're very proud of their distinct culture, you know, and their own heritage. Um, but it gives them like complexity and nuance that they absolutely do not have in the original films. Mm. And I feel like, you know, the portrayal of them that we get in the Book of Boba Fett, consciously or not, it owes like a big debt to what goes on in this book, you know. And I really feel like what this book pulls off, it's way more layered and deep and interesting what it does with the Tuscans in this book than what they managed in the show. And it's not really a fair one-to-one comparison, right? It's just different mediums. Um, But yeah, I absolutely loved everything that happened with the Tuscans here. Um, The ending was a bit controversial. We'll get to that later. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I thought it was all fascinating. Yeah, I am. Oh, what was I going to say? I saw a lot of people um, referencing this book when Book of Boba Fett was coming out, especially those earlier episodes. Um, and I, I had kind of picked up on a few things that happened with the Tuscans and the other characters. But um, obviously it was different reading it for myself. And as you say, it really gets into um, their history, um, the struggle that they have with the settlers um, and, and what they value. And um Aark herself goes on this journey over the course of the book and it's it's pretty empowering where she ends up because um you know how how she relates to Ben is that um they previously had a Jedi character become a Tuscan it's not a name that I was familiar with I don't know if it was someone who'd already shown up elsewhere were you aware of them yeah, it was a completely new person to me as well. I don't know if they were original to this or not, but it was a really fascinating concept. You know, the idea of a Jedi leaving the Jedi Order to join the Tuscans. It was like, wow. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Unexpected. Because <laughs> obviously it's like before the Empire takes yes. over. It's not like they were just automatically in hiding, but I guess they must have been hiding, in hiding for a different reason. Yeah. And um, It did make me think I want to read that book. <laughs> As well as this one, I love this book, but um, yeah, that sounds like it could be a whole other novel in its own right, you know. Yeah, so you know, she was had this idea that um, the Tuscans are meant to interact with these Jedi, you know, wizard characters who come along and hopefully save them and and 
help them deal with whatever their struggles are at the time and that is what happened with that previous character so she sees ben and realizes that he has powers she actually thinks at first that it's annaline who's able to do the magic or you know the jedi tricks or whatever um and then you know it's having these interactions with ben where she wants him to join the tuscans and obviously that's not going to happen yes. but over the course of the story she realizes okay we do actually have everything that we need here and we can empower and save ourselves i just have to convince the rest of my community that we can do that which yeah. is a, a really great message exactly it was a really positive ending um i actually found a really good interview of the author um john jackson miller on fangirl blog and he was asked about Ayak specifically. Um, could you maybe read out the excerpt from that interview I've highlighted, Kirsty? It's the relevant bit. Mm -hmm. You made sure readers weren't just seeing the human perspective of life on Tatooine. What made you want to explore the world of Ayak and the Tusken Raiders? I felt there was an opportunity to tell a parallel story to Obi-Wan's, ironically, one also involving Anakin's fall. The Tusken clan are, are reeling from Anakin's acts during episode two. Many are quite superstitious, and his elimination of the One Clan was so complete and mysterious that it sent them all into a downward spiral. Aark, like Obi-Wan, is struggling to pick up the pieces, trying to find some act that might repair things that might bring the clan's spirits back. Writing a Tuscan as a point-of-view character gave me the opportunity to get inside a very alien mindset, and the fact that the clans were all fragmented offered the chance to come up with some traditions and mythology unique to their group. Some things, like the gender roles in Tuscan culture, had been established earlier in other sources, but my thinking was that couldn't be the whole picture. This was a people trapped between its past and no future. Either someone affects a change, or the spiral continues. Yeah, and it's a really great interview overall. I'll try and include a link in the show notes, because yeah, it just shows how deeply and carefully he, he thought about all the different dynamics, and you know the parallels that were going on between the different characters and stuff so yeah it's a really good read it um, does make me wonder if uh, you know they didn't mention it in the disney gallery episode or anything but whether this book was in a conscious influence for the book of boba fett because that idea of the female warrior character um you know as we're kind of experiencing aark's perspective that was something that sounds as if it was new to her like she was a trailblazer in that way and previously women had just become you know been primarily um about looking after children and then we have that female warrior character in the book of boba fett do you think that was like a conscious influence oh god yeah i i would really hope it was um and it's definitely absolutely the sort of thing where i could see pablo you know saying like look there's this really amazing obi-wan kenobi no novel from legends that has a really deep exploration of Tuscan culture and Tuscan characters. Because, yeah, obviously you do get that female Tuscan warrior in Boba Fett. And, yeah, I feel like this character, I'm not aware of any other like prominent female Tuscan warriors apart from Ayak and the one in Book of Boba Fett. So mm. I'd be very surprised if they both rose completely independently. Yeah, it's very cool. And, yeah, in terms of the human characters, so... I don't know about you, Kirsty, but I remember reading the first few chapters of the book and it's a, a lot about those characters, basically, and setting up the history between them and the dynamics. And for a lot of that initial stretch, I was like, what is this? Like, space EastEnders <laughs> or something? <laughs> Did you get that vibe, though? I guess, but it also... It, once you've read the whole story, it does feel quite fitting because it is Kenobi coming into this brand new social setting in this brand new environment for him and it could not be you know 
he reflects on this himself. The Jedi Order was his family and community, and now he doesn't have it. And this is him like getting to know humanity in a way. Because obviously yeah. the Jedi don't really act like the average human being, do they? No, no, So it is sure. him trying to navigate these relationships, navigate the fact that women have crushes on him, because of course they do, because he's very handsome. Yeah, and I, I do think for sure, you know, it was all necessary in retrospect. It's just, I think at the beginning, you're kind of like, hang on, I picked up this book and I thought it was going to be about Kenobi. Yeah, Why are we reading no. about these people? And that's what I said earlier about like being a bit discouraged at first. I was like, I want to know more about Obi-Wan, but it's important for them to introduce us to these characters because then we see him, Ben, through their eyes um, and they all have very different things going on. Um, and yeah, there there is this kind of like soap opera drama playing out here. You know, Orin has intends to marry Annaline, who's the the widow of his friend. I can't remember the name of the guy. Can you remember? Um, Dana, Dana maybe? or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, and she almost feels. I was quite excited to realize that she felt to me almost like the successor to like an Aunt Beru character, but someone who actually gets the chance to have an inner life and and dreams of her own um because i always come back to i i know it sounds like a bit of a joke when i say it but i am a fan of aunt beru um and she does have that story in the from a certain point of view book where she she genuinely does have her own ambitions and dreams and she puts them aside when luke arrives yeah and she's happy to do that but um you kind of get the follow-up to that in a character um and in an arc like annaline's where she is living this small life on Tatooine keeping her store together keeping her family together but she always had these dreams of going away to university of studying something else and getting off Tatooine and eventually she does get to do that but she has to believe in herself first and it is Ben Kenobi coming into her life and and kind of allowing her to dream a little bigger that allows that to happen yeah now I found it really relatable as well as someone who comes from a small town you know a lot of those like claustrophobic dynamics and that sense of being trapped you know by all the like history and entanglements of all the social relationships around <laughs> you you know so it felt like grounded in a way that I'm not used to seeing in Star Wars but it was nice to get like a small dose of that you know it's obviously I go to Star Wars for escapism I don't necessarily want to be reminded of what it's like to live in a small town but I think it was used really well because it was about exploring all those dynamics and I guess the sinister side, you know, of that like close-knit community and how people can manipulate and exploit each other in that context. And then it's ultimately about giving like Annaline, who's our main like point of view character in that situation, a way out of that, you know, and a future that's different from that life she'd sort of become stuck in. Like almost of our like ever planning to, you know, it's just how her life turned out essentially. Um, so yeah, I felt it was a really like interesting use of like the original characters and Annaline in particular. Um, I do have another quote from that interview um, where it's all about Annaline. Mm. So could you read that out, please, Kirsty? You were able to introduce some new characters and prominent roles in the story. One of them is Annaline, the proprietor of Danar's claim. I love how she's tough, but not without her share of worries and vulnerabilities. Was anyone in particular your inspiration for her? While I never base characters on actual people, I do pick up personality aspects and manners of speech here and there, much as any other writer might. Annaline, I would say, probably shares more traits with my wife than any character I've written. 
She's a lover of nature, like Annaline, and her ability to deal with all the curves that life and family and work throws at her never ceases to amaze me. People around her nicknamed her the intrepid Meredith many years ago, and as readers see, Annaline gets that sobriquet as well. Annaline's world is shaken up by a lot of shocking events, but she's strong and centred enough that it's never long before she's tackling the problem head-on. They're quite different in many ways, to be sure, but in ten years of my fiction writing, Annaline is the character she says she recognises herself in most. And Annaline, connecting back to what was mentioned earlier, becomes absolutely the right person for Obi-Wan to meet in this stage. He sees what she's sacrificed to be able to provide for those she's responsible for, kinfolk and otherwise, and it helps him to see exactly where his path lies. And I guess that kind of links to the quote that I shared earlier where he was talking to her about how small lives and interpersonal connections can matter just as much as the things on a grand galactic scale. Exactly, yeah. And I feel like, in a way, it's a bit of a, um object lesson for Obi-Wan himself, right? Because he's grown up since infancy in this scenario, you know, where you're a Jedi, you're so important, you're at the heart of the galaxy. You know, they're literally on Coruscant, which is like the London or New York, you know, of this, like, Star Wars universe. Um, and then, you know, he's in this, like, nowhere town, like, that's completely obscure. And he starts to see the value in the lives that the people lead there you know, in all the different cultures, you know, the humans, the Tuscans and stuff, and it just gives him a radically different point of view on things from what he had before. So, yeah, I, I think it's all tied together really nicely in that way. Mm. Yeah, I feel like, you know, even though Owen and Baru obviously don't show up as, like, significant characters in this book, I think it gives us a kind of a taste of what their life with Luke would be like. It does that in a way that doesn't feel too on the nose. It's just giving us a sense of like, this is what life is like on Tatooine. These are the kind of people, they all have their own secret dreams and ambitions and entanglements. So yeah. I feel like that's done quite well. Exactly. Yeah. And there's one main character we haven't spoken about much yet, who is Oren Galt, um, mm. who is the smiling. What, is, what did you call him? The smiling one? The smiling, the smiling one, face. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I really love Ayuk's um, names for everyone. Um, yes, like isn't like one of them like the Airbender or something like Air Shaper. That's right. Uh, that's what she calls Annaline when she thinks that Annaline is the one with the Jedi powers. Mm. Um, yeah, but o Orin is the smiling one, and he's essentially the villain of the piece because spoilers. <laughs> Obviously, I'm sure anyone listening has already realised there are spoilers, but it turns out that he's basically been running a protection joint where he's going around all the locals in the desert and getting them to give him money in exchange for protection in exchange for protection against tuscan attacks and initially this is framed as a really positive thing but later on you find that a lot of the attacks have been faked by orin to essentially intimidate people into signing up for the scheme because Orin, due to various complicated reasons, is in deep debt and he's in serious trouble. So that's why he's doing this scheme. And yeah, I, I thought he was a really interesting villain. He was much, much more grounded and it was much more easy to follow his motives than is usually the case with Star Wars baddies. Um, so yeah, I thought he was a really interesting character. What did you think, Kirsty? Yeah, obviously what he does is despicable, but he, it's hard to even think of him as the baddie, right? Because he's yeah. not like a, you know, a Sith that Obi-Wan has to fight. He's this man who's made absolutely terrible choices and finds himself trapped and is he just like keeps going. There's this thing, there's a refrain Obi-Wan keeps saying to him 
turn back. You know, he's trying, I guess he's trying to do things right in the way that he didn't get the chance to do with Anakin. Um, and it doesn't work out. There is this like strong parallel with what ends up happening with Orin, I think, with um, what happens to Anakin as he becomes Vader. Yes. Um, and I don't know how I feel about that thematically, but we'll get to that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, um, and it's fair to have conflicting feelings. But yeah, Obi-Wan, like, he he clearly does feel empathy for Orin and like they start out as well Annalene is like well you guys were friends and there's almost like this quasi love triangle where she has a bit of a crush on Obi-Wan and Orin wants to marry her but it's kind of over time revealed that that's not necessarily because he like loves loves her it's that he wants her money yes um, because he's in trouble and she's been taking care of things so he needs to fall back on that which is not fair at all yeah um Exactly. Um, there's actually a really good quote I have about Orin, and it's basically Ben literally comparing how Orin has fallen into crime and like evil, essentially, and, you know, thinking about Anakin relative to that. Um, so it's this. There's still good in him. That's just what Padme said to me about Anakin. I don't know whether I believed that about him. Maybe if I had been more aware of his smaller transgressions, I might have seen what they were leading towards. I don't know. I do know that Orin Galt hasn't fallen as the result of a single act. He's had a lifetime of small crimes. He smiles and lies, and people like him. But the bill has come due, and his fear has driven him to even worse acts. I, I find that sort of comparison interesting. So again, it's Obi-Wan like thinking more deeply about what's happened with Anakin, and seeing it as sort of like a fundamental flaw in human nature. You know, how there's all these little things that we do and there's not a single big thing that happens it's step by step that you go down this dark path mm. and yeah i just thought that was a really nice part yeah and the character of jabe who is annaline's son is kind of being manipulated into that too yeah but, um and and obi-wan says you're not too far down the path you can come back and, and he does yes um but yeah it's it's very interesting the way things work because you know you have this community where things aren't like super desperate but they're obviously living challenging lives and they're trying to make ends meet and um you know it's, it's a no frills they're not living the life of luxury as you said they're not you know living fancy cosmopolitan lives on coruscant um and he takes advantage of that he takes advantage of the fears that not only he has himself but like he's stoking them um so that the people around him are more afraid than they need to be of, you know, the indigenous people of Tatooine. Like, they are constantly referred to as the settlers, in contrast. Um, and, and he's stoking that anxiety and conflict between them, which is obviously not the right thing to do. And um, I guess in the end, you're supposed to get the sense that he has his comeuppance, but it's in this really <laughs> horrifying, disturbing way. And I don't know how I feel about that. Um, yeah. Do you want to go into that a bit more now, maybe? So I feel like as we're talking about Orin, it might be yeah. as good a time as any. Well, it's kind of foreshadowed throughout in the, um, as I said earlier, um, Aark is kind of referring to human characters who become Tuscans, whether they're kidnapped or kind of adopted into the fold. And she has this anxiety about the clan and its future because people are dying and they're not, you know, not necessarily being replaced fast enough. There are children, but... Um, you know, she worries about them not being trained enough and they're just like this general sense of terror about the future of the clan. And um, basically Orin 
becomes a Tuscan at the end against his will. He again it kind of, it's kind of like what Obi-Wan thinks happens to Anakin. He thinks that he's died. Yeah. Um, because he kind of falls off this he's he's in his speeder and then he falls over a cliff, right? And because there's nothing underneath to like deal with that that gravity thing he yeah. just falls and they I felt like a very Disney villain death until yeah. I realised he wasn't dead <laughs> they presume like, ah. that he's dead and then he wakes up and thinks that he's being treated by the local doctor on Tatooine and then he realises that he's bandaged up yeah. and it's pre- presented as this like very horrifying thing where he's like no 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 um, but I just don't know how I feel about that because this is a guy who's expressed like these pretty bigoted horrible attitudes towards Tuscans the whole time and it's it's presented as like karmic justice that he has to then endure life as one but yeah. I don't know how how that would feel for the rest of the Tuscans like I, it just doesn't quite work for me but I also it wasn't a surprise when it got to that because it had been pretty heavily foreshadowed yeah can I offer a bit of a defense in terms yeah. of why they do it so I think it. I would totally agree with you if they just turned him into a Tuscan and just like chained him up and kept him as their prisoner. You know, up well they spine. do. They do chain him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they do. But the, he's doing more than that. So they use him for his moisture farming skills, right? So they right. use him to get water, which they didn't previously have. So I, I didn't see it as just being like pure torture or sadism. You know that they were keeping him. They were keeping him to make him like atone in a way, you know, for all the wrongs he'd done to them. Because there's a sequence earlier in the book where, you know, Orin leads a massacre of a bunch of Tuscans, essentially. So he kills a lot of them. Um, And, you know, by doing that, by harvesting the water for them, he's essentially making it possible for them to thrive again. You know, there's an emphasis on the difference that the water makes to the prospects of that Tuscan tribe. Yeah, but if I think it's about the way it's presented. That passage is clearly meant to be like horrifying, right? Yeah, this yeah, no, no, and it is, it's definitely not like, oh, is that nice? Whereas if it was more like his choice to atone, but like there's a part where Ayark's talking, well, she's thinking about him later on, and she's like, oh, he's constantly whining. We chain <laughs> him up. He's probably not going to live long anyway. It's not like the Tuscans have compassion for him. Yeah, it's not I like understand. they keep him alive. To, and, and this is not me saying that they're bad characters for it because like from their perspective of course he deserves it but i just think it it felt a little it, it felt a little jarring to me yeah no no and that's completely fair i i did work for me but i absolutely see the cruelty in it especially because he's that there's a very brutal scene like just prior to you know his speeder going off the cliff where his son is killed and yeah. i don't think tuscans kill him i think his um like like a wild dog or something um savages him um and you know that's a really horrible brutal moment and it's kind of like wow this man has been heavily punished (laughs) at this point um so yeah there's definitely no redemption i don't think for him you know like he is just punished essentially so yeah i see where you're coming from yeah i mean it's it is on a level of anakin becoming vader in that it's like oh it probably would have been better for him if he died yeah for sure which is and in a way, if he does lead a short life from that point on, then that's a mercy because he'd probably want to die in that context. So, yeah, it's pretty rough. Because he's even, you know, when he ha- he's having this realisation, he realises that his voice will sound different if he says anything and he vows to himself that he won't say a word. I mean, that's just like Vader with, with his voice, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I have actually, can you remember that thing about the Jedi who joined the Tuscans? What, what about it, sorry? 
Oh, sorry. So that Jedi, um, his name was Sharad Het. Right. And it turns out that he was introduced earlier. So he wasn't an invention of this book. Okay. He was a character who already existed. In what? Um, it looks like it was probably a comic. I'm just looking. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's some of the Dark Dark Horse comics. Okay. So yeah, that's where it comes from. So that makes me really interested in those comics. I want to learn more about those now. Mm. Yeah, because he's... By contrast, like he's willing to become a Tuscan, right? Whereas Orin is yeah. obviously not. So it's no, like, exactly. what's the story there? And he does, choice. and he marries, right? And yeah, uh, I think it is it another human character that has joined the Tuscans that he marries, and and they have children. I think so. Yes. Yeah. But Just like fascinating points of Tuscan culture that are introduced here like they're just kind of dropped in like Ayark has never seen the faces of her children because they get immediately wrapped up when they're born yes yeah yeah no and I love that it's, it's it makes it feel so like vivid and tangible in a way it's just not in other bits of Star Wars you know it's the like typically the Tuscans you know they're always like exoticized and kept very much as like this outsider species you know but you're not meant to understand them Whereas this, because you do have that direct insight through Ayak's perspective, it really does make it feel like this is their lives. These are just how they live their lives. You know, all they want to do is survive, you know, after this awful massacre that's happened to them and now several massacres, unfortunately. Um, And yeah, like it really makes it possible to understand their perspective and what they want essentially from Tatooine, you know, what they're asking for. Which ultimately I don't think is much. It's just like, we just want like space to like live our lives and express our culture, please. Mm. Um, I I hate this word, but it doesn't like woobify them, (laughs) you know, because they are still like very like, take no prisoners if you want, apart from they do take prisoners. (laughs) Um, But you know, they don't take prisoners in a nice way. Let's put it that way. They take them in a really awful way. <laughs> yeah, she's not very sentimental in Exactly, in her thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah, definitely not sentimental. Even as her and Ben come to, like, an understanding, she's still, like... There's not, like, an... I wouldn't call it an affection there for him. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like she's very seriously toying with just murdering him at all. <laughs> quite late in the day to be honest <laughs> oh my god well he could be dangerous that's the thing yeah so no, exactly he won't join her fear. like the other jedi character did she's like well if you're not with us you're potentially an enemy so yeah and in terms of orin i mentioned earlier about his son dying and there's a really quite powerful exchange between him and i keep on skipping between calling him obi-wan and calling him ben because for obvious reasons he's called Ben throughout this book, you know, because that's the name he goes by on Tatooine. Um, but in my it's head, it's a name a lot of people go by on Tatooine. It turns out, yeah, it's true. It's like the John Smith, isn't it? <laughs> Even Tatooine. Kenobi apparently is a quite a common name there. I did not realize this before this book. Yeah, in a way though, it's like it kind of has to be right because I think doesn't Luke know he's called Kenobi? He definitely knows he's called Ben. Yeah, um, in the original, well, it's film. always one of those quirks that I thought was funny for Star Wars that like. Kenobi is there and yet Vader has no idea but it makes sense if it turns out to actually be a common name yeah exactly it's like oh there's gonna be a million Ben Kenobis it's fine yeah so there's this exchange between Orin and Ben after um Orin's son is killed essentially so Ben approached staying a respectful distance away Orin looked up from the mess that had been Mullen did Ben expect him to repent now after this he snarled hatefully I'm going to tell them the Empire 
and I'll destroy you. She's thinking about turning Ben in at this point. Ben folded his hands together and looked at the ground. Oren struggled to stand again. Did you hear me, Jedi? The Empire will destroy you and everything you love. Ben shook his head. They've already done that. Mm. Oh, God. This book is just filled with like sick burns like that, essentially, where, yeah, you totally understand that Obi-Wan has just had everything stripped away from him, essentially, other than, you know, this job of looking after Luke, essentially. You know, he's having to pick up the pieces of his life and there's just not many pieces left. It's really quite sad. Yeah. They've had the, all, all of the characters no loss as well, obviously. Annalene lost her husband and Oren um, before even the start of the book. He lost his son, who's the you know the twin of his daughter, who's still alive. And I don't right, think we yes. know what happens to Vika by the end, right? She kind of disappears. Maybe she just kind of runs away and tries a new life. Yeah, I think I saw a mention that she, you know, she was having medical care. So I think she got okay. hurt towards the all end, right. but she was definitely still alive. Okay. So, There's yeah. this kind of, you know... Un- there's a theme there of like we've all experienced loss but it doesn't have to poison you it doesn't have to mean that you go down this dark path too you can find meaning in living you can still have a future yourself as long as you work through that and that's what obi-wan's doing and orin just seems to kind of drown in it and and kind of becomes convinced of his own victimhood yeah that allows him to justify kind of taking advantage of all the people who are around him who were supposed to be his friends. Yeah. So. so I did get the impression that, you know, once upon a time there was like genuine love on his part for Annaline, you know, that he did like actually sincerely have romantic affection for her. Yeah. But at this point it's just kind of been eroded by like his fear and his obsession with resolving his debt. Yeah, you you can imagine that's the kind of thing where he starts to realize, oh well, if we got married, that would be the solution. And then over time that becomes the primary reason why he believes they should get married rather than actually caring about her. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's really sad. Yeah. Um and I did like little references throughout like there's even a mention of Satin which was really interesting because I think Clone Wars, the TV show, didn't start till like 2008. So obviously the events of Clone Wars are mostly unacknowledged in Legends books. But because this one came out so late, it was able to, you know, take account of some of what happened in Clone Wars. Mm. So I think it mentions that like Satine had called him Ben at one point, which I thought was a really nice touch. Yeah. This it's an interesting one, this isn't it? Because it's so late in the game that it feels weird to call it Legends, but it just Same. is in that it's not technically considered part of the new Disney canon, but maybe from their perspective, it kind of is. I mean, we'll we'll see when the show comes out, but I'd be surprised if they like consciously go against anything that's presented here because it, it, you know it is a few years later, so there might be no need to kind of touch this this space. Yeah. So I guess the stuff of like Sharad Het, who's that Jedi who joins the Tuscans, that's, you know, very much like comics from the 90s, I think. So that is referring to like a relatively old bit of canon. But I feel like nothing that happens in this book would go against anything that's occurred in new canon. Essentially, I feel like it would all be pretty seamless. Yeah, because it, it takes care to wrap things up pretty well with like Annalene and her family leaving. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. We know. should talk about that briefly. So I think you mentioned, Kirsty, that Annalene has had a dream for a long time of doing like a zoology course with the University of Alderaan. And she's always had the application waiting on her tablet. 
And um, it comes, and it so happens that Obi-Wan sees that and he basically makes it happen for her, you know, and he like gets in touch with Bail Organa and Bail sorts everything so that Annalene can go to university. Mm. And I was just like, oh, what a dreamboat. Oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. Obviously the affair cannot be consummated, but that is like a real like act of like love, you know, even if it's platonic love. So I don't think he has romantic love for her. Um, I think he yeah. recognises that she has so much capability you know and she has been kind of just kept there by her circumstances and he kind of explodes at her at one point he's like you just you're so bored you know you deserve more than this you've done great keeping it all together for the sake of your children but you deserve to have your own ambitions and and to fulfill those and and be challenged in life so it's really nice that he holds on to that and like he comes by when she's like looking at her data bad at the shop right when everyone else is out of the pod race and she's just kind of like looking through all of these photos of different planets and stuff yeah and it's like she's scrolling instagram or something um and then he he, she throws the data pad she's like oh whatever that's obviously never going to happen for me and then he picks it up and sees the application it's from like 20 years ago so this is a dream that she's held on to for that long but on a certain level she let it go a long time ago she just didn't see her life going that way but he does genuinely care about her and and makes it happen for her but up until you know very close to the end she thinks that ben is leaving with them and so does her daughter yeah god that was a really really sad moment yeah i mean we could see it coming obviously there was no intention for for him to leave because he still has luke there to oversee but she's very much convinced that and I don't know if it's like conscious on his part, but he kind of does make it seem that he's going to leave with her, right? Yeah. Does he have this like feeling that she won't agree to it if she realizes that he's not going with her? Yeah. I feel like he does a lot of double talk, you know, because there's a really like cold moment towards the end where he tells her that he has a family on Tatooine. Yeah. And obviously the implication that she's getting is that he has like a kid, you know, and a mistress. There is a child. Somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's not yours. <laughs> yeah, and it's all factually true. Nothing that he says is a lie, but the way in which he frames it, it's designed to leave leave her with a misleading impression so that she'll mm. go away, basically. And oh yeah, I really felt for her. I was like, oh, that's cold, and like you totally understand why he's doing it. But yeah, boy, really crappy. Yeah, but then it's also nice to know once she's on the ship and they're ready to depart, and she's looking down at Tatooine. She is kind of like talking to him in her mind and and thinking that maybe they'll meet again in however many years. You know, she does still care about him. Exactly. And and she kind of like recognizes to herself and she says it to Callie as well because she's obviously still upset that he's not coming with her. You know, she says maybe there's something that he has to do here. Yeah. And I actually have that quote. Would you like to read it? It's just just above the um, closing section. Mm -hmm. So right at the bottom. I think... I think maybe Ben's doing the same thing, Annalene said. He's not staying on Tatooine because he wants to. I think he thinks he has to. Maybe somebody entrusted him with something. Something he feels he has no right to abandon. Someone else's dream, maybe. Like Dana in the store. Spot on. (laughs) Yeah, she's very, very astute. And, And I just love that. So again, it does what this whole book does so well. is taking something you know, that feels very humble and main- mundane to our eyes, you know, it's, in the greatest scheme of things, the store is not important to the fate of the galaxy, right? But it's still recognising that that is someone's life, you know, and that has been the focal point of this woman's life for decades, 
you know, and it's something she felt obligated to keep going after her husband's death, regardless of whether that was really what she was passionate about. And spoilers, she wasn't. Um, and obviously, without knowing exactly what's going on with Kenobi, what we're taking away from that as the reader is that there's a parallel between everything that's embodied in that store, you know, all the hopes and the dreams and the preservation of someone who's died, you know, someone who's lost. That's kind of what Luke is, you know, he's not a store. Luke is more than a store. I acknowledge that he is a child. Um, but he is also like this repository of Padme's like hopes, you know, for her children and hopes for Anakin even, you know, so I like to think that that's the person whose dream is being alluded to in terms of what Obi-Wan is trying to protect. And also more widely, the dream of the Jedi and the dream of the hope of the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. But I I like to think of Padme. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all really well done. And it just feels really wrapped up nicely by the end. Yes, definitely no hanging threads, which I really appreciated. Like it was all like it all reached a very, very neat conclusion. Yeah, which feels satisfying because sometimes I get to the end of something Star Wars, it's like, well, I know there's something else coming after this or they they can't really commit to anything. But because these were new characters, they really could have these finite feeling arcs um, and it, that it's like a, a very specific moment in, in Obi-Wan's life as well. So, yeah, it, it just works. Yeah, no, it's really well done. Um, and yeah, I guess... In terms of like how it ties into the films, I did um, find it like quite funny how you know it's very much tied in with certain things that we get in the original Star Wars film. You know, like Ben being renowned by the locals as being crazy Ben and stuff, and that's like how Luke um, knows him. And I think there's a lot of groundwork laid in this book for how he would develop that reputation down the road. Yeah, you know, because he's very talking to himself, talking to himself. <laughs> like riding everyone as EOPs. <laughs> oh yeah, I love how connected with animals he is. Yes, that was really important. And the badass moment of the crate dragon at the end. Oh my <laughs> god. I know that he killed the thing, which is a bit less Maybe nice. that'll be an aspect that plays into the show. Because yeah. we do see him on the EOP in the trailer, so Yeah. I'd like that. Give us some policy Obi Wan and EOP bonding time. <laughs> yeah. No, so I'm there for that. And yeah, and also the crate dragon. I and I really love the payoff of that because I'm a bit of a naive reader sometimes, so, you know, realistically, I should have seen that come in, you know, based on all the foreshadowing with the great dragon call and stuff. I was like, what, a great dragon? <laughs> <laughs> and it was genuinely exciting. It was really nice to read a book, you know, and have that real, like, page turning energy, you know, where it's mm. like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? I, I really felt like that. Yeah, that was a, an interesting point where they, like, turn the settler's weapon against the Tuscans on them. Um... Which, you know, they're not all equally to blame, obviously. Oren is definitely the villain in that scenario, but because everyone else is there, it's like this realisation that Oren's not going to be the one to protect them. They kind of all put their hopes and dreams on him, but... Yeah. He didn't deserve yeah. them. No. And it just, it's interesting, like, the, the idea that... Because obviously it's not like the Tuscans have never attacked. You know, they, they did attack and take Shmi in the first place but obviously that resulted in Anakin retaliating in a way that they couldn't have seen coming. But when we get to like the original trilogy with, with Luke and like the depiction of the Tuscans there, it's like, it does recontextualize some things, doesn't it? It's like, they're really not as dangerous and hostile as they are perceived. And it's kind of tragic that Orin set up this situation where he was like milking and stoking those fears. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it was just really perpetuating the cycle of violence and retribution and intensifying everything. So it was wildly out of hand. And yeah, it was just really grim. And it actually, the way it ended, you know, of all the revelations about everyone's true motives and what's really been going on all this time. It made me almost want to go right back to the beginning and read it again. I won't do that right now because, you know, I've got other stuff I want to read. But I could see myself rereading it further down the line. And I think it would be a really interesting book to reread for that reason. So I think you'd have a very different perspective on those early chapters. Yeah. See, now I worry that we've, like, spoiled it all for people who might be thinking, oh, that does sound interesting. Maybe I will pick up the Kenobi book before the series. Oh, damn. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to, there's no um, way put, to like, talk a big spoiler about it. disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. I think to have a meaningful conversation, yeah, you you just have to. I think I'll put in the notes, you know, listen to this if, if you really, really don't plan on reading this book or if you have read it. Um, I think even after listening to it, it would still be worth reading for all of oh, that, sure. that great character stuff between Obi-Wan and these other characters. And I, I do think that people will respond to Annalene like we have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm really happy that I read it before the show. I wish I'd read it earlier, honestly, but that's always going to be the case with something that turns out to be really good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and how do you think it's going to sort of like colour how you feel about the show going into it? Obviously, I know it's not fair really to compare them. So they're going to be very different types of stories. So I think it's clear from the trailers for the show that, you know, that's going to be a grander story. Kenobi's evidently going to go off Tatooine, you know, to do some sort of mission. Um and I've seen a lot of fans theorising on whether he will be communicating with Qui-Gon. I guess it'd be interesting to see if that thread gets picked up again or not. Yeah. And just in general, to see where he's at psychologically, because it's obviously a few years later, but it's not like he'll have processed and fully accepted what happened with Anakin yet. Yeah. Um, there's still going to be a lot of grief and, and regret there. Exactly. I, I do think that poster, I know I, I had a bit of a laugh about it earlier, but I do think that's genuinely what it's trying to do, you know, showing that he's a truly haunted person still by everything that happened. And I feel like Ewan is such a great actor, you have to give him that sort of material to work with. You know, like it has to deal with the more introspective qualities of the character and the wrestling of everything that's happened. So yeah, I'm curious to see how they execute all that. Um, mm. And I think I'm just going to try and have a, like a fair approach to it going in because it's not reasonable to expect the same type of introspection and depth that we get in this book so it has like lots of room to breathe and it's like quite slow you know and it really takes its time setting everything up and I understand why they can do things in the same way for a tv show yeah I think that's again what makes me really glad that I read this now because when we first heard about a Kenobi series this book is kind of what I hoped we'd get you know yeah. something that really does show that journey that he goes on there um and obviously there are more you know we do have these new characters and relationships but they don't distract from it they all serve to like bolster that journey for him yeah um so now now that we have this and I'm a fan of this book and these characters it's like well anything that the show gives me is kind of a bonus and as you say it is its own thing but I have this now so that's okay <laughs> Exactly, yeah. And I think just like as a final note of praise, I think I'll say what impressed me the most about this book was how much of it was original, you know, because I think a lot of Star Wars media, it does fall into relying on things we already know from other things, you know, and 
that makes complete sense. People often pick up Star Wars characters because they want to read a story about a character they like from the films or from a TV show or something. You know, that was admittedly a big part of why I picked this book up because I wanted to learn more about Kenobi. But the freshest part of the book and the most wonderful surprise was finding that there were these new characters like Annaline and like Ayak and like others that were just so interesting and compelling in their own right you know and they were created from the ground up you know by John Jackson Muller so bravo to him basically because I think that's it's not easy to do you know to create a character out of nothing and make them interesting in their own right so that you're not like impatiently skipping through to get to the next Kenobi bit you know towards the end I really wanted to learn what happened to Annaline you know and what she was going to do with her life and yeah I feel he accomplished something really special with the book mm. it makes me actually want to look up like has he written anything else for Star Wars yeah, or same. should they get him back <laughs> yeah no so I think reading this and reading the Revenge of the Sith novelization it made me realize how important it is to have a really good author you know writing these things so I think in future you know when thinking about legends novels that we can read and talk about I think I might take a more author based approach rather than even like plot based approach you know because Mm. the plot can sound interesting but if it's written by someone who's not that great (laughs) it might not be as fun to read yeah there's still I've read such a, a small percentage of what's out there for legends obviously it's like there's I don't know how exactly how many, but it feels like there are hundreds of books. Oh yeah, for sure. But the yeah. I've just got the impression that the quality varies wildly. Yeah, no, exactly. And I've heard fans of Legends say that as well. It really is all over the place. There's yeah. some great ones and some stinkers. Yeah. And I think sometimes, um, you know, like it's kind of fun to take a punt on things where you have no idea what it's going to be like and it might be terrible. It might be amazing. So it's kind of, I'm going to try and avoid too much basing things off what other people say in reviews and stuff although I'd be lying if I said I won't check those things out at all so oh my god I didn't know this he wrote A New Dawn which is about Hera and Kanan like before Rebels we should read that I have that book okay I'm surprised that you have it because you haven't watched Rebels maybe if we read that then you'll finally start watching Rebels Uh, yeah no it's true and and it's a prequel to Rebels right so (laughs) yeah it would make sense to read the book first I saw he did a short story for um, the Canto Canto Bike collection from The Last Jedi, Um, but I'm less interested in short stories. I think he's done some of the Knights of the Old Republic comics as well. Right. Yes, there's not much, really. Yeah, I wish he'd write more, because this is very (laughs) good. Um, But yeah, that's great. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up, Kirsty? I don't think so. Just if anyone is like, I'm guessing that people who are seriously hyped for Kenobi have probably already read this, you know, with fake fans here. But (laughs) if you haven't and you need something to just tide you over for a couple of weeks, just pick this up. Honestly, I don't think you'd regret it. Nice. Yeah, that was great. Um, But yeah, I would agree. Definitely check this one out. It's one of the it's one of my favorite Star Wars books I think now you know um might be recency bias speaking but I genuinely got a real kick out of it and had a really I great think we time both, reading it yeah we both really grabbed onto Annalene as a character didn't we yeah exactly and yeah it's like I, I wasn't expecting any good female characters so to get two really strong ones was like oh I love them <laughs> I was very pleased yeah um but yeah, let's round things out there. So I'm Rachel. And you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.